All right, well, good morning and welcome to Kinship 101. My name is Jody Britton and I'm the service coordinator at Foster Source. And I have the privilege of working to expand our services to include non-certified kinship parents. I myself am a non-certified kinship parent. Um, since August of 2017, DHS brought a 13 year old boy to my home and he was the nephew of one of my best friends. <laughs> we thought that we were taking him in for just a few weeks while the aunts would try to move him to Florida through the ICPC process. I had no clue. Um, neither of us had any idea what that entailed or how long this was actually gonna go. So fast forward about four years to September of 2021 and we were granted APR of our sweet little boy. You'll understand what those acronyms mean if you hang with us through the end of this class. I've lived the experience of kinship caregiving and understand the confusion, the hardship, the frustrations, and the joy. So when I began working for Foster Source, I immediately thought of all the ways that we could help to support non-certified kin who often have very little support. So at Foster Source, we are here to help provide relief items like diapers, wipes, beds, car seats, clothing, um, various needs that, that you as the kinship caregiver have. We have support groups. We have one coming up uh, in two weekends that I hope you'll register for. We, have, we can help with respite relief if you need a break. Um, we, there's therapy at no cost to the caregiver. You guys, there's therapy. <laughs> oh gosh. Um, we also provide training and historically our training has existed to serve foster parents who need ongoing certification hours, um, or just want to learn really about anything as, as their role as foster parents through tra a trauma informed lens. Um, if you guys scroll through our library, I have no doubt that you're going to find information that is valuable to you as a non-certified kinship caregiver. Um, I know you don't need the ongoing training, but you guys, this stuff is, this information is gold. Um, so we offer training about two to three times a month from here on out. You guys are welcome to join us for any of those trainings. We are also in process of creating uh, kinship specific training that we would love your feedback into for what types of um, information you would like. Um, so moving forward, that's what we have planned for kinship, but what better way to start these kinship classes with other than kinship 101. Um, so the child, child welfare just placed a child in your care. You're somehow part of that child's life already. Grandparent, aunt, uncle, cousin, neighbor, family, friend, school, um, somehow. So now what? <laughs> Our hope is that this class will give you the information that you need to know as you begin your kinship journey. Um, you'll soon find out that the learning never stops. But right now, our desire really is just to help you learn the basics about what resources are available, expectations of, uh, about your role, the key players involved in the life of your child's, of the child's case and your case and more. So we're going to get started. If all the panelists can go ahead and um, if you're not already on screen, would love to see you on screen. Um, we have some great voices in here this morning that I would love to introduce to you. We'll start with Jeannie Brzezinskas, and I'm so sorry if I butchered your last name, Jeannie. <laughs> um, but Jeannie has been the Kinship Care Program Administrator with the Division of Child Welfare at um, Colorado Department of Human Services for 13 years. Previous to that, Jeannie facilitated kinship support groups through a nonprofit agency and worked as a caseworker specializing in kinship care cases. Jeannie has a passion for kinship care 
and has been working alongside or on behalf of kinship families for 22 years. Jeannie received her master's of social work degree in, um, from University of Denver in 2003 and has been a licensed social worker in Colorado since 2018. So thanks Jeannie for being here with us this morning. Um, we will move on to Jamie. You wanna wave Jamie? Hi Jamie. <laughs> Jamie, let's see, um, is the Kinship and Home Study Supervisor with the Weld County Department of Human Services. She has worked in child welfare for 16 years and has had the opportunity to work in various roles within child welfare throughout her career. Jamie enjoys her current position working with kinship families. She greatly respects kinship families and the sacrifices that they make at a moment's notice to care for their kin. When she's not working, she enjoys being outdoors with her family. And today's gonna be a great day for that, Jamie. <laughs> um, Allison. Where are you, Allison? Hey, Allison is, the, is currently the Kinship Program Supervisor at Adams County Human Service, um, yep, and has been with the department since 1999. Her areas of experience in the child welfare field include ongoing casework, home study evaluation, foster care recruitment, retention, certification, family engagement services, and programming, including facilitating family meetings and icebreaker meetings, benefit navigation, and kinship family support. Thanks for joining us this morning, Allison. Josette Jaramillo, um, did, I, did I do okay there? <laughs> um, Josette was born and raised in Pueblo, Colorado. She's been working for the Pueblo County Department of Human Services since 2005. She graduated with her bachelor's in sociology from Colorado State University Pueblo in 2002. Her master's of arts in community counseling from Adams State University in 2007. And she began her career in the ongoing unit before moving over to the foster care unit. She's been in the foster care unit ever since while also absorbing the ICPC, there's that acronym again, <laughs> family finding and kinship aspects of child welfare. She's been a supervisor for just under one year and continues to grow and expand the kinship program for Pueblo County. And last but not least, we've got Gail Engel. Gail has raised her grandson since before birth, adopted him at um, since birth, did I say before birth? <laughs> She's been raising her grandson since birth and adopted him at age nine um, and is a co-parent of her granddaughter. She is the founder and executive director of Grand Family Coalition. She is a Grand Voice Network member of Generations United, representing Colorado Kinship Grand Families at the Family First Implementation Team, administration. Gail, you have a lot going on here. Administration of community living, supporting grandfamilies, raising grandchildren, advisory council, co-chair of the Larimer County Alliance for Grandfamilies, and a member of the National Technical Assistance Center for Grandfamilies, raising grandchildren council. Woo! Wow, Gail, that was a mouthful. So thank you to all of our panelists for being here, helping us understand more about kinship care. We're gonna go ahead and dive in. So Gail, we're gonna start with you and you can clear up anything that I just said. We would love to hear more about what it is that you're doing. And as the founder of Grand Families and a kinship caregiver yourself, I would love for you just to share a little bit about the basics of kinship care. Um, I know when I began my journey, I had so many questions and concerns. So what are some of the things that you would wanna to say to someone just starting out their journey as a kinship parent? Uh, yes, thank you, Jody, and, and welcome to everyone this morning. So, yes, this has uh, been quite a journey taking on my grandson. When I started with, uh, when I started taking on my grandson, it was a struggle with my daughter. 
having mental illness, having a struggle, being a single mother. And as time went on, I started to realize that she was not going to be able to do this by herself. So I co-parented for a while. Um, I actually wound up taking custody of him and I found out that he had fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. So some of our grandparents oftentimes find out later and in their journey that there are other issues besides just this beautiful, loving little child that sometimes those children struggle with other things, sometimes trauma, most of the time trauma. So um, because of that, because I was struggling so hard to find resources, um, I turned to Department of Human Services and mind you, that was 15 years ago. So 15 years ago, when I reached out to Department of Human Services for support, I couldn't find any. And so I created Grand Family Coalition because I realized how many more of us in the country there was. So when I started my organization, Grand Family Coalition, it was around the premise of trying to support families in their journey. Because as Jody will also tell you that sometimes we look at this as a short-term fix while the parents get their life together. It oftentimes winds up to be a lifelong journey. So um, Grand Family Coalition was created to help those grand families through that journey. Um, now that we're 15 years later, there's been other um, situations that have happened. There's been some legislation that have passed. As Jody explained to you, I now sit on federal and state councils to advocate for changes within child welfare systems. So um, some legislation has been passed and we have figured out that children do better when they're placed with kin. Um, they strive better. That isn't always possible. Sometimes foster care is needed but we know that children do better when they are placed with kin. But sometimes kin are not aware of what to, what to expect and how to move forward. Oftentimes they get a call in the middle of the night to come get their kids, so they're not prepared. Uh, they're unprepared financially. Sometimes they have to relocate or housing. They have to change their living situations. They're in, they're, um, unprepared for life changes that go on with being a kinship care provider. They oftentimes have challenging relationships, not only with their, um, their sister, brother, um, grandchild, um, siblings. Uh, kinship care providers come in a, in a wide array, not just grandparents raising grandchildren. So along with those challenging relationships, oftentimes they lose their friends, they lose lose their social connections. Um, they have to make legal decisions about court involvement, determining options between guardianship and allocation of parental rights. Often caregivers are also taking care of their older parents. So it's a generational thing. So taking care of their own child, their grandchild, their um, niece or nephew, dealing with um, their own child, dealing with... Um, their own relationships and also dealing with their aging parents. So it becomes a real challenge for them and one that they aren't always prepared for. But finding those resources is very important. So finding things like foster source to walk through this journey is the most important thing to do. They talk about um, finding a counselor 
that's why our organization was set up because knowing that you have someone out there that has the same lived experience as you do is important. It helps you manage this journey that oftentimes, like Jody alludes to, can sometimes be a long journey. I've had my grandson for 15 years now. He had, because of the fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, I've had to advocate at, for the schools. I've had to, all of my friends are now grandparents raising grandchildren. So the importance of finding a support group with other people with lived experience like yours is important. Finding those resources, being able to find the resource that fits your specific need is really important. Knowing where to find those things, knowing where to find reading material that fits your specific um, situation is important to do. So I'm sure that you can find a lot of those resources through foster sorts. You can also find them on our website. So as we talked about, I advocate for all of you at the state, federal, um, and other avenues, um, even here in the state of Colorado, sitting on the Family First Prevention Service Act. Um, I work with trying to find those resources for you, all of you. Um, now sitting on the federal council, we are working on legislation to support all of you. So we know that many times also grandparents don't wanna become certified or they aren't capable of becoming certified for whatever barriers. Know that we are working on trying to reduce those barriers. The importance of becoming certified is really useful because you will have better access to those supports. If it doesn't happen, if you don't become certified, know that there are resources out there for you. So being able to find them, understanding um, legal definitions, understanding what cannabis, understanding what adoption tax credits are, um, medical diagnosis and evaluations for your children, educational resources, long range planning for the future. Um, if you're an older adult, you may wanna think about planning for the future um, when you are no longer able to take care of your children. Think about those things now. Um, parenting a child with trauma. Those resources are out there for you, either through foster source or many other avenues. So I encourage you to please start looking into them now. Thanks, Gail. Judy. Yeah, thank you so much. That was a great, just jump into what we're gonna be moving through this morning. And I just wanna say on behalf of kinship caregivers, thank you for the road you have paved and the hard work that you're still doing to um, at the county, state, and federal level on behalf of all kinship caregivers. Um, we appreciate you, Gail. So Jamie, you are up next. We have had so many questions come in about the process of kinship parenting, kinship caregiving. It goes back to DHS brought a child and, the, and left them here. <laughs> what am I supposed to do? So some of those original questions, what is the role of the worker who originally brings the child to my home? Um, what information will I get when a child's brought into my care? Am I allowed to attend team meetings? Um, are we allowed to access previous health, including mental health um, and education records? Why or why not? So these are some of the questions that we have had come in. I would love if you could just share with us about the process of kinship caregiving.
Oops, Jamie, you're on mute. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> thank you, Jody, and thank you to all the kinship families who are joining us today. We appreciate you taking time out of your Saturday. So the first question you had mentioned was the role of the worker um, who originally brings the child to your home and will they continue to be your caseworker? So that worker who places the child in your home is known as the response or intake worker for the child. Their role is to complete the investigation of abuse or neglect and determine if the allegations are founded, inconclusive or unfounded. If they are placing a child in your home, then they believed that the child was not safe in their current situation. Removing children from their home is not done hastily and is only done if there is a real concern for safety. The worker who places in your home will most likely not remain your worker for the duration of the case. Unless you reside in a smaller county that has workers that keep the case from the beginning to the end. However, the majority of counties have separate units and the case will be transferred to a permanency or ongoing worker after 30 or 60 days. The permanency caseworker will be the worker who is on the case for the majority of the time. The permanency worker's role is to work with the parents to support reunification. Unfortunately though, sometimes reunification cannot be achieved. So permanency workers will then look at a concurrent goal of allocation of parental rights or adoption. And then the next question you had mentioned Can I was you really quick. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt you. So you talk about the permanency caseworker, but as non-certified kinship caregivers, is there another worker involved with our case? Because someone else kept contacting me originally in our case, and I didn't know who they were, but they kept telling me they were a caseworker. Who, who would be another caseworker involved with? Yeah. So I do touch on that in a little bit, but Sorry. Um, there's no, you're good. So I'm going to skip down to the third question you had asked me, and then I'll come back um, around what ongoing visits look like and who all is there and who comes. So you do have that assigned caseworker for the child that will need to see the kids in the home once a month. They often choose to see the kids in your home monthly, but they can also see the kids at school or outside of your home, <coughs> home such as daycare. Um, and then if your case is court involved, you'll be assigned a guardian ad litem. That's known as the GAL. So if you hear that acronym, um, they'll need to also come and see the kids quarterly. And then you're also assigned a kinship worker. So maybe that's who you were getting calls from. So since you're a kinship family, even, even non-certified, they are assigned a kinship worker and that person is your support person. Um, so they will also wanna come to the home and meet with you. And really, if you're having struggles, that is, that's your go-to person. Um, in Weld County, I mean, I can speak for Weld, not for others necessarily. We do like to try to schedule all of those people to go to the home together just so it saves you appointments, because if you have, you know, three different people contacting you, wanting to come out, it can get a little overwhelming. Um, 
Plus having everyone all come at the same time is a great way to make sure everybody's all on the same page because um, sometimes, you know, there can be communication breakdowns. And so it's great to have everybody all together. So a tip I would have for kinship families is, you know, say your kinship worker reaches out to you and they want to schedule a home visit and you already have a home visit scheduled with the caseworker. Mention that home visit time to your kinship worker and see if they can come at the same time. Um, that's a great way for you to get both of those visits done. And then, like I said, everyone all has the same information. Did that answer your question, Jody? It did. And I love that tip okay. about asking if they can come at the same time, because that is definitely one of the things I was not prepared for was how many people were going to be in and out of my home. And <laughs> yeah, and I think um, I think kinship families think they have to have a separate time for everybody. And it's actually really nice to have everybody all together. So, yep, that's a great point. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, so when a kiddo is first brought into your care, what information are you gonna get? So if it's an emergency placement and you're getting a child in your, into your home, sometimes the county doesn't have a ton of information. Um, you know, we are constantly gathering information if we have history in our system about the family. Sometimes it takes a while to get through all of that if it's a truly an emergency. So. You know, sometimes you may get a child and you're not going to get a ton of information and that can be frustrating for kinship families and we totally understand that. Um, but you should always get some basic information such as, you know, the child's name, their age, date of birth, what school they attend, um, along with the parents' names and the reason for removal. And um, a lot of times kinship families know more about the family than we do. So what I've noticed with our kinship families is they're often giving us a lot of information that we didn't know, which is super helpful. Um, and of course, the county, as we continue to gather information, we will definitely share whatever we can legally share with kinship families so that you can best care for the child or children in your home. Um, we just want to make sure to, you know, pass all that information on to you as we gather it. And um, so the next question was, are you allowed to attend team meetings? And yes, absolutely, 100%. Please attend the team meetings. You as the kinship family are a huge part of that child's team you have all the information about how that kiddo is doing currently. And we wanna hear from you. Um, and it's also a great way for you as the kinship family to stay informed on everything that's happening in the case because everyone is all brought together at those meetings. We have parents, we have the guardian ad litem, the caseworker, the caseworker supervisor, um, so that is, you know, if there's any outside like therapy providers or visitation supervisors, all of those people are invited to that meeting. And it's just the best way to get all of the updates on what's occurring. Um, so if you don't have that team meeting on your calendar, I would reach out to your caseworker or your kinship worker and find out when that 
next team meeting is scheduled so that you can, you know, hopefully make sure to attend. And of course, the um, they want to hear from you at the team meeting so that you can report out about how the child is doing in your home or at daycare. And then there was a question about, can you have access to the treatment plan? And yes, you can. So the treatment plan is part of the court letter. And at least I know here in Weld, we do send all of our court letters out to our kinship providers as well, as you're a party to the case um, listed as a special respondent. So you do get a copy of those court letters and that also includes the treatment plan. And uh, another question was, are you allowed to have access to previous health, including mental health and education records? And if not, why? So if you have custody of the child in, in your home, you can have access to those health records and educational records. You would just need to you know, take the court order with you. Um, if the county has custody though, it's a little trickier. Um, you do need to go through the county to get some of that information because you do not hold custody. So it, it's really tied to custody on what you can get. Um, but if there is something historical that you're concerned about, just bring it up to the county and they can definitely help you get answers to some of those questions you may have about you know, a child's education or mental health history. Because we wanna make sure that you are informed so that you can best care for the child in your home. Can and, I ask a question about that, Jamie? Yeah, definitely. How do we know if we have custody of the child or if the, if the county has custody of the child? Great question. So you should get a court order if you have custody. Um, and if you're unsure about that, because that is often confusing. If, if the kinship family you know, doesn't attend the court hearings, they're not really sure. They just know they have kids in their home and they don't know who has custody, which is um, sometimes a communication breakdown on our end, right? Because the county should let you know who has custody. That's very important. Um, so just reach out to the caseworker or your kinship worker. They can also look that up and see who has custody. We, we have to, that's a very big deal on the department's end. So we have to keep track of all of the custody and um, we will, you know, that's an answer we will definitely have. And ask for a court order. If, if the department or the county you're working with says, you know, you have custody, ask for that court order. That's gonna be a really important piece of documentation for you to have. Thank you, thanks for answering. Yeah. And then how can I obtain respite care? I, that was discussed a little bit earlier. Uh, Foster Source is a great resource for obtaining respite care along with lots of other wonderful supports that they discussed earlier. Um, what I've noticed is respite is really um, kind of location-based. So this is something you want to talk directly with your kinship worker um, about if there's any respite events coming up or any supports out there in your area. Like I know in Greeley, we have an event coming up on April 23rd through Rebalance. Um, and so there's, you know, it's very location-based, it, it seems. Um, so that, that will be a good one to just go directly to your county 
And that would be your kinship worker that should give you that information. Your caseworker for the child most likely will not know that answer. Can I ask you really quickly if are kinship caregivers allowed to use other kinship caregivers or foster certified foster parents as respite relief? Yeah, so that's part of prudent parenting, it's called. Um, you are able to make those decisions just like you would with your own kids, hmm. your own biological children. You can, um, if you trust the person, you can use them to care for the child short term. It is always a great idea, though, to let your caseworker and your, your kinship care coordinator know the plan, especially if it's, you know, more than a few hours, you definitely need to communicate with the county about who you're using for respite and the period of time and where that respite's occurring. Um, so the, the biggest thing with everything really is just communication, right? Um, if we're communicating, then, then it, everything goes so much smoother. <laughs> so thank you. Yeah. <clears throat> All right, last question um, was, what if I decide to no longer care for my kin? What will happen to them? And can I still see them? So I'm sure whoever asked this question is, you know, really struggling right now. And they're, it, this is probably a really hard time for them. So we understand that it's a, it's a really big decision if you decide to no longer care for your kin. If you are having any struggles or concerns with a child in your home, it's important that you reach out to the county as soon as possible. Um, the county may have supports or ideas on how to help you keep the kids in your home so that they do not have to be moved. The county does not like moving kids if possible. So we always try to avoid that by supporting you, the kinship family, with the kids in your home. Um, a lot of times there's things we could do that kinship families aren't aware of to help. So please, please ask if you're struggling. Um, but if, so, if for some reason you cannot keep them and the kids need to move out of your home, then we will look for another placement. We will first um, see if there's another kinship option. If there are no other kinship options, then we will look at uh, foster care. The more notice you can give the county to find a new home for the child, the better, so that we can make a planned move and make sure that it's the best move for the kiddo in your home. Um, and absolutely, you can stay in contact with kin after they are moved from your home. Kids in care always need as many permanent connections as possible. So you may be able to be a respite option for that child down the road or just a support person for them ongoing throughout their life. Um, it really does take a village to raise a child and the county would still want you to be part of that child's village. So true. Um, we have a couple comments and questions, but I do see Gail's hand up. So I'm gonna see if she had something to interject as well. I do. I, do, um, I wanna kind of talk to some of you about that is a big decision. Um, it is a big decision to decide whether you're going to be a kinship foster parent and then deciding whether you want to be certified or not. And thinking about that long haul and you start to feel guilty, sometimes feel some shame that you aren't able to do it. 
don't ever feel that way. Know that build your support system, build people around you, like she says, a village. Make sure you have other kin around you, make sure you have neighbors. You can do this, but be realistic with yourself because it would be more harmful if that child was with you for several, for a couple of years and it failed rather than hit it head on and being a part of the support system for someone else rather than you doing something that you aren't capable of doing. Be realistic with yourself. Thanks, Gail. I love that, especially, yeah, it's having lived that. It's, I want to also just validate that question and that feeling of, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know that there's a single non-certified kinship caregiver out there, or if I had to guess, even certified foster parents who have had that thought at least once, if not many times, can I keep doing this? I don't know. I don't think I can do this anymore. It is so normal to have those thoughts and questions um, and plug for the therapy that Foster Source provides. It's one of the many reasons why, why we advocate for that, because you should not, I mean, finding that support, none of us can make those decisions alone. Like we, we need input into that. So thanks, Gail. Um, Let's see, Jamie, we did have a question about respite that I'm gonna go ahead and throw your way. Can, um, can members of my family or friends provide overnight respite care if they are not fingerprinted or background checked? So yes, that is part of prudent parenting, but you definitely just wanna be in communication with the county about that just to let them know. Um, since we're involved with the child, we just need to know where they're at, who they're with, um, but yes, you can use those people that you trust for some respite care. Okay. And I, I have to just ask this really quickly. Um, is that because Colorado, um, things can vary across county lines with some of these rules is, do you know if that, and Jeannie, this might be a question for you. Is that, a, is that true across state level or the state, or is this county specific? You know, um, I'll throw it out to Allison and Josette as well, um, but I'm going to say it's probably more county specific um, because when when you're talking a few hours during the day, that's one thing and that really kind of goes towards prudent parent. Um, but on the other hand, when you start talking overnights, there are counties that do feel more comfortable and at least doing the non-fingerprint based checks. So not necessarily fingerprints, but there are some other non-fingerprint based checks to run, um, you know, trails, making sure that they don't have any founded allegations of abuse or neglect, Colorado courts, making sure they don't have, you know, any um, domestic violence or any kind of violent um, convictions. So it, it, that is one of those things that's going to vary by county a little bit. Okay. Thanks so much for clearing that up, Jeannie. Um, bottom line is, communicate with you or either the caseworker or the kinship worker if you are looking for respite um, because it it can happen for sure um, you can access it but it might look a little bit different in your county so um, that's great Jamie I think that we had one last question that came in kind of last minute about the ICPC process so I, I don't mean to put you on the spot if you're not prepared to answer that um, but we were we were told there's a relative in another state pursuing an ICPC what is that <laughs> <laughs> yes, so ICPC is, uh, stands for Interstate Compact of Placement of Children, I believe that's, yes. Um, so that is when there is a kinship family 
or a connection for a child in another state, we have to go through the ICPC process. So that um, kind of in short is our county will send that state information about the child and the family that we want that state to look at. Um, <clears throat> so say, you know, uh, little John, the kid here has a family member out in Nevada. We send information to Nevada so that they can look at that family because we can't physically go out there and see their home and meet with them and see if they're appropriate or not. So we asked Nevada to do that for us. Nevada then does a home study on that family or has the family get certified depending on how we, we send the request. And then they get back to us and let us know if this family member is approved or not. Um, just because a family member is approved out of state does not mean that we will send that child out of state. It just means we have another option. Um, so I think that's something that, that people get confused about too, is, hey, I have an approved ICPC, this kid should definitely be coming. And that's not the case. Um, if we're working toward reunification here in Colorado and parents are doing good, we don't wanna send a child off to Nevada where they can't visit um, and we can't really work on reunification. So it just really kind of depends on where the case is at. Perfect. Thank you so much for clearing that up. Um, yeah. I know you had mentioned early on uh, regarding information that um, we as kinship caregivers will receive. And you made the comment that as family or friends, we often are giving the county information. <laughs> um, and I know that that was very true in, in, in my case, and I'm sure it is true in, in a lot of kinship cases because we have that unique um, relationship with the biological parents. And so um, I just appreciated hearing you say that because I know I personally felt like a snitch sometimes or, or like I was overstepping my boundaries if I shared information that I knew. And so I think I just wanted to appreciate that you acknowledge the fact that you welcome our feedback and our, and our information. So yes, definitely. Yeah. The county, the county loves getting, you know, information. We are like I said, we're learning and gathering and kinship has been around this family for far longer than the department. They have a very different relationship than the department, of course. And so, yeah, yeah. Um, you guys are often the experts and yes. we're just trying to play catch up. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much. And I just saw over in the chat here. Oh, you went on mute, Jody. Of course I did. Um, Geraldine <laughs> said in the chat over there, just, I think this is back to the idea of possibly disrupting a placement that I thought that way once, but I thought if I give up on my child that I, but I thought if I give up on my child, it would make me feel bad. So I gave it my all and he is a great kid and doing great. We love hearing that Geraldine. Thanks. Yes. All right. Great to hear. Yeah. Jamie, thanks so much for taking the time to share all that information with us. We're going to move over to Josette, who's going to talk about the role of, um, kinship caregiver. So I know, um, Josette, I, I missed your hand up earlier. So feel free to interject with whatever you want to interject regarding anything that Jamie just talked about. Um, but as far as the role of the kin caregiver, some of those questions have been, um, regarding supervised visits, because maybe sometimes kin are asked to supervise visits with the biological parents. And, and so one of those questions, I'm not comfortable supervising visits. Well, I have to. Um, 
let's see, what, what if I feel threatened by the biological parents? What does it mean to become an intervener? Um, am I allowed to attend court? So these are some of the questions that we've received regarding the role of the kinship caregivers. So Josette, take it away. Yes, I, lo I love it. I was looking over the questions um, that I am assigned to. So um, any other uh, counties, so Jamie and Allison, like feel free to, to hop in if it's different in your county. Cause I think it's, I think some of those roles can vary um, by county. Um, I don't know if, if you all know this, um, my mom and my stepdad were kinship providers for my nephew. Um, so I certainly have seen both sides of the kinship, um, the kinship side, I guess, or spectrum um, as you have it. Um, in Pueblo County, we assign kinship support workers for all of our families. So you have a caseworker that is specific to you to make sure that you um, have information, um, that you have your questions answered, that you have somebody who's available, um, you know, to talk to you and kind of help guide you through the process because it's a lot. Um, you know, I've been doing this for 17 years, so I kind of know the ins and outs of the system, but I don't expect somebody who's, you know, walking in off the street caring for, you know, their nieces or nephews or grandkids to understand the system. So when we're talking about visits, um, a lot of these questions are really situation specific. Um, I would say that if you are uncomfortable supervising visits, or if they are asking you to supervise visits in your home and you are not comfortable with that, I would say you let your kinship coordinator know immediately um, that you're not comfortable doing this um, and you're not comfortable supervising visits. I think kinship providers can kind of be put in the middle of the bio parents and the department and the court um, when they're asked to supervise visits, especially if there's issues that are going on in the visits. And we certainly don't wanna put you in that position. Your primary role is to take care of this child and kind of provide for their needs. Um, your role is not necessarily to be a visitation worker. Um, so I, that's, that's what I would say. I mean, I feel really strongly about that. I think there are instances where the parents are doing really well um, and they're really trying to get it together. We've seen lots of lots of cases be held up by housing um, here in Pueblo, so maybe the bio parents don't have their own place to live, um, so they can come over to the kinship provider's home and kind of do some parenting, help the kinship provider out, um, but they're doing really well. That's kind of the only barrier, um, so we certainly encourage that. If the kinship providers are comfortable with that and, and they're agreeable to that, we encourage that, but I don't think that it's anything that we would mandate. If you're not comfortable with it, let your kinship coordinator know, let your caseworker know, um, <clears throat> we are certainly here as kinship support workers to advocate for you. Um, and that means also attending court with you. Um, lots of my kinship coordinators um, will attend court with our kinship providers, whether that's in person or virtual. We, we still do a lot of, um, we still do a lot of uh, court via WebEx. So, you know, my workers have the ability to kind of hop on court and if they need to interject and, and let the judge know that the provider is not comfortable supervising visits, um, the court is really understanding of that issue and generally will not like court order um, a kinship provider to supervise visits. Again, I think that varies from county to county, depending on your judge. 
Um, but our judge has worked with our kinship providers really well. Um, so there was a question about what if um, kinship providers feel threatened by bio parents. Um, I think, again, like that is 100% situational specific. So if you are feeling threatened physically, if they have threatened you, um, because we see that also, I mean, we had a case here where uh, the bio mom threatened, you know, her mom uh, with violence. So we did encourage um, that provider, one, to file for a restraining order, um, and two, to notify the court what was happening and that that had occurred. Um, so in those instances where you're feeling physically unsafe, um, you know, we, we certainly will help guide you through that process and certainly give you the best advice that we can. Um, I think sometimes like the attorneys for the parents can get a little chapped um, when that happens because, you know, they see that as a barrier and obviously they're there to advocate for, for their client, but we would encourage you to make sure you take any steps necessary to protect you and your family um, and your property. Um, you know, we, we see that too. Um, I think sometimes we have a perception about, um, you know, feeling threatened, either the bio parents feel threatened by you because you're taking care of this kiddo and you're in a, you know, you're in a completely different situation than they are at the moment that the kids are removed. Um, you know, sometimes there's some hostility there because I think sometimes bio parents feel like you're trying to, you know, quote unquote, steal their kids from them. Um, but it's certainly something that we try to work out. And if we need to sit down and have kind of an icebreaker meeting and say, you know, here's what our role is, here's what our objective is. Um, you know, we understand, everybody understands that our primary goal is reunification. Um, you know, this provider is here taking care of this kiddo in their time of need because we don't want them to go to foster care. We understand that kinship care is the best place for kids. Um, I tell folks all the time that when I was a kid, I would have rather lived with either of my grandmas because I've always been a grandma's girl um, in the nicest little shack in Pueblo than, uh, or, or in the worst shack in Pueblo um, than in the fanciest foster home in Pueblo because, you know, really nobody gets you like your family does. Nobody, you know, nobody can tell, there's not a foster family in the world. Um, and I've worked with foster families for about 10 years. There's not a foster family in this town who can come up to me and say, wow, you really have your dad's eyes or, you know, you have your dad's sense of humor or you look just like your grandma or you remind me so much of your aunt in New Mexico. Those are only things that can be shared with me by people who know my family, who know my history, who share part of that culture. And that's so important for our kids. And I understand that it can't always happen. We have foster care for a reason. Um, but for me, that is one of the reasons why um, I will go above and beyond for our kinship providers because I understand that. I understand those family connections. Um, you know, every time I, I get to see, you know, my aunts or, you know, my mom or my dad, like I'm reminded of who I am and where I come from. And like that for me is like so important. Um, one of the other questions was about being an intervener on a case. Um, 
I am not an attorney. I will preface this with, I am not an attorney. Um, but being an intervener in a case is where you are officially requesting to be a party to the case. So you do actually have to file a motion for that to happen, or you can do it in court. You can attend court and ask the judge to add you as an intervener. Um, so you essentially become a party to the case and then you have you know, a right to an attorney and, and all of that stuff. Um, Jody, did you want to interject there or did anybody want to talk about being an intervener? Because it is complicated and it is a legal thing and I am certainly not an attorney. Yeah, thank you. You prefaced exactly what I wanted to preface. We're not intending to give legal advice here. We do plan to, we, if you, if people are listening, you can dig through our library. We already have a legal panel in our library, um, but we do plan to actually do another legal um, class specific for kin and so that will be coming down the road but thank you for prefacing that i do really quickly i think that you should be able to answer this question without being a lawyer <laughs> what's the difference between an intervener versus a party to the case because jamie had mentioned earlier that we can actually have access to the treatment plan and and um, you know we'll be invited to court because we're a party to the case so what's the difference between the two in a very non-legal way. <laughs> um, it, it, it is, I think, kind of like a legal upgrade. Um, so I think as an intervener, you have a right to have an attorney. Um, so, so you can um, go out and hire an attorney to, to essentially represent you. Um, as a party to the case, as a kinship provider, um, you don't necessarily have that right. And then you go through your caseworkers, county attorney, GAL, and stuff like that to make sure um, your voice is heard in court. Um, I will say what we usually direct our folks to do here in Pueblo County is if you have a question um, or you would like to file to be an intervener, I will send you the website for the self-help and the form section and direct you to the help desk at our judicial building. I live like two blocks from the judicial building, so I'm pointing this way um, at the actual judicial building, um, but we will direct you there. Their self-help um, and their help desk is fantastic. They can help you apply for a waiver of fees and um, make sure you fill out your paperwork correctly. And, and they are specifically trained in that. I am not. Um, yeah. So that is that is usually the direction we send folks in. Great. I appreciate that. Yeah. So, but so then as a as a party to the case, oh, we're going to go ahead and let Jeannie actually jump in here. Nope, I, I appreciate that. I think I was struggling a little bit. Go for it, Jeannie. I, I just want to um, also plug the Colorado Courts website because there is a self-help section and also has all of the forms. So if you're wanting to try to, to do some of this on your own, the Colorado Courts, it's, and it's, I want to say it's at colorado.courts. I mean, it's, it, if you just Google Colorado Courts, but then go to self-help and forms, in that form section, there actually is an introduction page that actually is step-by-step -step instructions on how to fill out the forms and a list of the forms that you will need. So um, if, you're, if your particular county court does not have someone who can help with that, um, at least that, that court website um, is a really good place to start as well. That's great, thank you. I think we're, someone from our team is trying to find that link to put in the chat right now. Um, but we also, somebody already put in our, one of our previous on demand, the child welfare attorney panel that is on demand. Um, it talks a lot about intervening, intervening in that panel by 
actual legal people. <laughs> so that link is in there for anybody who wants to grab that and listen to that training. It was a fantastic training. Um, and great. We have all those links over there in the chat. So um, I think, let's see, Gail, did you have something else you wanted to add there or is, did we cover it? Yeah, I, I, I know that being an intervener is one of the first steps when you become a kinship provider or get involved in a case. And so I do know that it can be very challenging to get that. A judge will ask for you to become an intervener sometimes. Sometimes you have to know what the case number is, which is sometimes difficult to find. But everyone, every kinship provider is a kinship, a, a family member is allowed to go and show interest in being involved in the case. Generally, if you are already involved in the case because you're considered as a kinship placement, you're already in the case itself. But if you are not involved in the case and you want to be, you, being an intervener does not necessarily mean you get to speak on the behalf of the children, but it does mean that you get to know what's going on within the case. Yeah, thanks. Um, yep, uh, that one is a whole nother class that we're excited to do. <laughs> Um, so what, uh, Josette, I know we've already talked a little bit about, are we allowed to attend court? So you can say anything more on that if you want to, but, um, like Jamie had mentioned earlier, just because we are a party to the case. Yes, we, and I know there's another piece to it that maybe you'll bring up, maybe you won't, but yes, we can attend court. I'm just going to throw that out there because it's already been covered. So Josette, you can either add to that or, um, move on to the next question. It's up to you. That's, that's my no, I'm going to add to it a little bit. I know that some of our kinship providers have been told you don't have to go to court or no, you can't go to court. We very strongly encourage our kinship providers to attend court either by WebEx or in person. Um, I think that it is important to know what's being ordered and what's going on. Um, and again, like our kinship support workers are there for our kinship providers. If they have um, a question or you know, they want some extra support, we certainly can do that because court can be really confusing. Um, but then my providers, my uh, workers also like look up in Colorado courts what happened in court so we can let the providers know as well. Um, so yes, you are allowed to attend court no matter what anybody tells you. And two, we strongly encourage you to do that um, because that's where all the magic happens, right? Um, so you'll learn about visits and, and kind of what the plan is and you'll learn about the, how the bio parents are doing as well. Um, in those court hearings, so we strongly encourage that. Um, the next question, uh, actually, I'm going to pick. I'm going to go to number six, and because we're still kind of on visits. Um, so the question was kind of who organizes visits, who provides transportation to visits. Um, so um, the organization for visits is done by the ongoing caseworker, and and sometimes the the GAL. Um, will kind of help facilitate that and say, you know, can we do visits on Tuesday? Because they, you know, work on Wednesdays. But for the most part, it is um, the ongoing caseworker. It can also um, be, depending on how the visits are structured, like we have a visitation center. It's renamed the Center for Supportive Family Time now, but it is a center to have visits. Um, so sometimes, depending on the case, we have a visitation center worker who will coordinate some of those visits. So again, it just kind of depends on circumstance. We do ask that our kinship providers um, 
transport children to visits if they're available to. If not, you know, they need to let their ongoing caseworker know um, or their kinship support worker know. And we certainly can help um, provide transportation, you know, if they're um, working or, or they got something else going on, we certainly can help with that. Um, the last question that I had is, um, do we need to get permission or kind of what ongoing permissions do we have for kids in our care? Um, and it was really around out-of-state travel, haircuts, doctor's appointments, medications, stuff like that. Um, so doctor's appointments and medication, um, you should have that permission already when these kiddos get placed. You get you know, a form that kind of gives you the authorization to take this kiddo to the doctor. Um, we've got like three separate forms that we use for public counting because doctors recognize different forms. So you've got three um, to pick from. You can pull all three of them out and say, which one do you want? Um, so we do an authorization to provide medical care um, on our admission form. There's a blurb at the bottom that says, you know, the county is authorizing um, emergency medical treatment of this kiddo. And then we can also provide you with a letter that's on, on county letterhead that says, you know, you have this kiddo and have permission um, to, um, to get this child seen and, and get those medical appointments taken care of. As far as medication, I would keep the ongoing caseworker and the guardian at litem in the loop. Um, it depends on the medication. Um, you know, normal antibiotics, totally fine. But when we're talking about some of those psychotropic medications, um, I would keep the ongoing caseworker and guardian at litem um, in the loop on those. Um, so they know kind of what is being prescribed, who's prescribing them and why they're being prescribed. Um, so, you know, uh, obviously like that's a, that's a doctor's order, um, but certainly keep everybody in the loop so everybody knows kind of what's going on. Um, there might be some objections uh, to certain medications depending on what they are. Um, some of them are controlled meds. Um, so I would keep everybody in the loop just to kind of make sure that you're covering your bases. Um, in terms of permission for uh, out-of-state travel, um, you do have to get permission from the county for that, um, we have a, a pretty easy form that we get notarized and signed by our administrators. Um, that's in the event that the department has custody. We probably would still do the same form in the event that you have custody and maybe the court order hasn't arrived yet. Um, so we would give you a form that says, you know, you have permission to travel to this state for this day and, you know, between this span of time that is signed by our administrators. Um, our phone number and our crisis phone number is um, written on the bottom of that form. So you do have permission from the county. And, you know, if you get pulled over or somebody has a question, you know, they can always call the county and we certainly can help clear any of that stuff up. Haircuts is a tricky one. Um, we like to get permission from bio parents for haircuts. Um, hair certainly can be, um, uh, parents can have really strong objections based on their culture or religious preferences um, for haircuts. So we do ask that kinship providers get permission from biological parents for haircuts. Um, I did have a case one time where it became a medical issue because I had a child who was special needs and he had very long hair, um, but he was chewing it and choking on it. Um, the parents objected to haircuts because of um, cultural reasons. And um, we did ask the, the court to order a haircut 
um, that, you know, was still longer, but not long enough to kind of put it in the mouth um, because it did become a medical issue. But for the most part, we do ask that bio parents give permission um, for haircuts. And, you know, most counties have a form that bio parents can just sign and say, yes, I'm giving permission um, for my child to get their haircut. Um, and then that should be good once we get that signed. Um, I don't know how other counties or other folks do um, haircuts and, and permission for, for that other stuff, um, but that's kind of how we do it in Pueblo County. So if any of the other folks wanna jump in and interject, please feel free. That sounds great. Thank you so much. I think you covered it all. <laughs> Not seeing anybody jump in. So we have two sections left. Um, that let's see here we are going to launch into the certification portion that's okay <laughs> or resources Jeannie I don't care if either of you guys can go next but um certification is what we have next so Allison can you help us understand what it takes to become certified we had a million and one questions about this one <laughs> um but feel free to um yeah, you can go through it question by question, or if you want to lump them together, it's up to you. So um, okay. how long does it take? Or what is the process? I, yeah, this one, so tell us what you teach us, a wise one. <laughs> I will do my best. So most important uh, thing to be aware of is that only kinship families who have a, are caring for a child that is part of a child welfare case are able to um, pursue certification. So uh, what that means is that there has to be an open, active dependency and neglect case in a dependency and neglect court um, from a child welfare standpoint that has jurisdiction over the children due to situations of abuse or neglect. Families or uh, relatives can, who are caring for children in the community because they have an agreement with parents or cousins or aunts and uncles, they are not eligible for certification. And that is often uh, something that families call me to ask. Um, and so I wanna just be clear that it's only for families who are involved with child welfare active. It, it's only when there's a case open. And so um, what, the, how long does it take to become certified is a really challenge to answer. Um, the average time period, I would say, is anywhere from two to four months. And really, the time frame is determined by the applicant's ability to get all of the requirements met as quickly as possible. And so there's a lot that goes into becoming certified. But what I'll do is just go through kind of what the initial requirements are or the initial expectations are. Um, when you become a kinship family with child welfare, uh, there are a lot of options presented to kinship families. Uh, one is where you are a non-certified kinship family. That means that the court, um, the court will generally ask the, the caregivers um, to be special respondents. I know earlier we were talking about interveners. And most often, at least in Adams County, the judge is talking specifically to the caregivers 
and asking them to become a party to the case because they are caregivers for the children. And that language is known as special respondents. And um, there are a number of, uh, there's a couple of different ways you can be a non-certified kinship caregiver. Number one would be the county would ask to retain legal and legal custody of the children and uh, give the caregiver um, physical custody of the child. Um, the other option is where the county will just facilitate a custody shift, so to speak which is all temporary, of course. Parents do not lose their rights in these situations. Um, the court would um, grant a kinship provider legal and physical custody of the child, which is temporary. All of the parents' rights remain intact. Um, and so when, um, when families are presented with kind of the legal options about caregiving, the third option that's offered to families are to pursue certification. And so in order to pursue certification, when a family is certified, the court then grants legal and physical custody to the department. And um, that's often an area that families uh, struggle with. Um, because in the two former scenarios where the, the uh, county has legal custody, can have physical custody, and where can have legal and physical custody, in that particular situation, families then have all of the, most of the decision-making um, authority for children. They don't necessarily need to um, get permission from the county to help maybe have dental work for a child or dental surgery or something like that. So the custody, I talk about that because the custody piece is often a very important point for families um, in taking care of children uh, who are in the situation. So um, how long does it take to become certified? Generally two to four months. Um, some of the things involved in that or there's a lot of paperwork to complete. Uh, things such as the there's various questionnaires, you'll be asked about your financial situation, you'll be asked to verify your income, um, you'll be asked to, if you have children of your own, <coughs> you'll be asked to do references to their school to see how they're doing. Um, you'll be asked to provide personal references who can attest to kind of your character um, your parenting, kind of who you are and how you navigate the world. You'll be asked to complete medical evaluations um, for you and your children. And this includes everybody living in your home. That includes your spouse, your significant other, your friend who's visiting um, for the next year, your adult children, your biological children, really anybody who's in that home. Um, so they all have to agree to participate in this process. Background checks, um, fingerprinting, um, lots of, um, in my opinion, intrusive interviewing and questions. Um, you'll have to go through a home study evaluation, which in Colorado, we use the SPACE tool, which is called the Structured Analysis Family Evaluation. 
And that involves lots of time interviewing in your home with a home study practitioner. Um, you'll be interviewed, each caregiver is interviewed individually. Together, the, your children will be interviewed. The other folks living in your house would be interviewed. They might talk to your doctors. They might talk to your um, friends. They might talk to your adult children who live out of state. Um, it's a really very thorough process and it's a very intrusive process. Um, and so from the time, so you get through that process and then once you're approved to become a certified home, you're also then expected to participate in training. And so the requirements per rule are, and it's volume seven, if anyone wants to look up or read rules and regulations, which is really a lot of fun. Um, it's volume seven, you can just Google volume seven, Colorado Child's Welfare. And there are lots of rules that kind of govern how we do everything we do. And all of the things that we ask families to do is because there's a rule and a law as to why we need to do it. Um, and so that's often a question that families ask is, why do we need to do all this? This is my, this is my grandson, this is my niece, this is my godchild. Like, why are you asking all these questions? I didn't do anything wrong. And so we are so, so understanding of that. Like we know that. And we everything we do is because there's a law and a rule that tells us we have to do it. And so we understand that it's not easy. Um, the training requirements include at, at the base 27 hours of training plus being certified in CPR and first aid. Um, training is, varies from county to county. The state of Colorado offers some training and counties offer different types of training. Um, and so it's really best to ask your county person what's available in, in your county, because um, that will vary and there'll be lots of options, which is really helpful. That's really changed over the years. Um, so there's 20, so it's 27 hours plus CPR and first aid certification. And there's an expectation that you complete 20 additional hours of training per year after you are certified. So there's an ongoing training requirement for certification. Um, the, the kind of initial process for when you decide you want to be certified, and this is for you, you'll be asked to fill out an application. Your, um, your, your kinship caseworker will ask kind of what your interest is in certification, um, talk to you about the requirements, um, ask you to kind of become aware of what the requirements are. And um, some of the benefits of becoming certified, really what I see in my work with kinship families is the compensation. Uh, generally, families that are struggling financially um, really benefit from the extra income that is available through foster parenting. And so that's usually the motivation. However, uh, some families are really interested in um, the ongoing and predictable support that comes with a certification worker. The community of fostering 
and the, the families that are fostering because it kind of opens up a lot of other supports for families uh, that are kind of in shock and coming to terms with the whole situation that's transpired. Um, there's also a lot of ongoing training and just really connecting with the community of caregivers. Uh, and the one other thing that I would say in the last few years, why uh, certification becomes kind of an important option for kinship caregivers is uh, what's called RGAP, R-G-A-P, which stands for the Relative Guardianship Assistance Program. And that's when um, there might be a situation where if adoption ever became an option for a caregiver. So for example, um, I have my niece, I'm caring for her, but the courts determined that my sister really cannot parent the child indefinitely. And they look to terminate um, a parent's rights then the child could be adopted by that, that caregiver. Sometimes there are circumstances where families or, or kinship caregivers aren't able to adopt or a youth, uh, maybe 12 and over, doesn't want to be adopted. Then we have to kind of look for other permanent options. And the Relative Guardianship Assistance Program is one of those options that provides kind of long-term guardianship of the child and also provide some additional financial support on an ongoing basis for that child in your care. Part of that requires that you be a certified foster parent for six months prior to that being an option to consider. So that is kind of another avenue as to why kinship families might want to look at uh, certification. So, it is difficult to become certified. It is not easy. It's very time consuming. There's a lot of expectations and requirements. So I will not pretend like it's just super easy. It doesn't happen overnight. Um, it takes a lot of work. Uh, one of the questions that folks ask are what kinds of things disqualify, what would disqualify me as a kinship caregiver? Um, because part of the conversation is uh, looking at people's backgrounds. And I won't go over all of the disqualifying events that rule you out, but folks who either are becoming the caregivers or live in the home, are, are their backgrounds are being looked at. And some of the most serious things that we will not be able to certify a family with is if they have in their background um, convictions of child abuse, uh, crimes of violence, assault, um, uh, murder, uh, <laughs> kidnapping. There's um, felony domestic violence situations, offenses involving sexual behavior, um, recent felony drug-related offenses, and or patterns of misdemeanors that are of significant concern. All of these things are kind of looked at when your family is being evaluated to be either a right or just a non-certified kinship caregiver or for certification but some of those those things will prevent you from becoming certified as a foster parent whereas it might not prevent you from being a caregiver that's a non-certified kinship provider and so that's probably a whole other conversation 
Um, what's the difference in assistance for certified uh, kinship foster parents versus non-certified kinship caregivers? When a, a kinship family is certified for foster care, they then receive what's considered foster care reimbursement. And foster care reimbursement is considered non-taxable income because it's, uh, it's given for the care of a child. And then non-certified caregivers, if they have physical custody of the child or legal and physical custody of the child, they then can apply at their county department for child-only TANF. And that provides about $141 per child. And kinship caregivers have to agree, if they receive this compensation, to cooperate with child support enforcement, as child support enforcement will then look to recover any monies that you are being provided to care for their children from the biological parent. That often complicates the decision for kinship caregivers. Also, if a child is in your legal and physical custody, you are then expected to apply for Medicaid for that child. Your application for Medicaid is not based on your income. It is based on the income of the child and the child's income is then considered zero unless they receive compensation such as survivor benefits, or they have a trust fund, or something that would make them ineligible for, uh, for those particular services. So important for caregivers to make sure that they're applying for Medicaid for that particular child. I've had caregivers ask me, well, I'll just put that or tell me, I'll just add them to my insurance um, because they have their own family insurance. And what I've heard generally from those folks are that uh, their insurance providers are generally unwilling to add children to their policies because it's a temporary situation versus a permanent situation. And so I haven't seen many caregivers be successful at adding children to their policies, though I certainly can't speak to that never happening. The, mo the majority of situations require that caregivers apply for Medicaid for the children. I think I've pretty much covered certification very briefly. Um, what other questions might there be? Yeah, you nailed it. This in, can be a whole class in and of itself. So you thank you so much for condensing it the way that you did. Um, it very well could be a whole class in and of itself in the very near future. <laughs> so, um, but this was a great overview. I really appreciate it. But just really quickly, I, I just want to clarify, non-certified kin do not have to certify. Is that correct? Yes. They can continue in their role? It's a choice, so I am aware that there are some counties that really strongly encourage and possibly require their caregivers to be certified, though that's definitely not the majority. And what I'm hearing is that those counties who kind of require that are really looking at other options. So I think that's, it is not a mandatory thing. Thank you so much. All right. Well, um, last but not least, we're going to move into some resources. <laughs> the big R question. So Jeannie, you're going to help us understand a little bit some, um, some of the available resources that non-certified kinship caregivers have. 
take it away. And I was actually trying to kind of type in the chat as well. So I'm going to finish that thought verbally before I move into resources. Um, it really was a question around um, parental rights. And there's, there's two ways that parental rights can actually be given up legally. So one is through, the, is through relinquishment and the parents actually have to go through, participate in relinquishment counseling in order to legally relinquish their rights. Um, or the judge can terminate parental rights during a hearing. Those are the only two ways to legally do it. If, if it has not gone through one of those two ways, those parents are still technically financially responsible for children and still do legally have parental rights intact. So um, just things to keep in mind so that you can kind of figure out where they're, if they're just saying, I give up my rights, that doesn't quite cut it. Um, they're still responsible. So they have to go through one of those legal avenues to, to legally um, sever parental rights. So I just wanted to make sure that I got that out there to, to finish that thought in the chat. Um, and before I go into resources, I, I touched on this earlier, but want to make sure that people understand that Colorado is a county administered state supervised system. And why that's important to know is it, it's because counties actually can tailor programs to meet the needs of their specific communities versus a lot of the other states who actually um, they do things on a state level, right? The, there's every program across the state is consistent. It, it, it's the same no matter where you go. The reason we do kind of a county administered system is because the teeny, teeny, tiny town of Springfield down in Baca County in the southeast corner of the state is not going to have the same needs as Sterling in Logan County up in the northeast corner. And I'm pulling that up because Justine, I saw that you were on here. So I'm going to kind of give a shout out to your county as well. Um, so Springfield's not going to have the same needs as Sterling, and neither of those are going to have the same needs as some of these really large communities in the metro area, right? So um, it's really important to have those differences and that flexibility um, to, to meet those needs so that, that each community can tailor the needs um, a little bit. That doesn't mean that they don't have the same rules and laws to follow. Um, volume seven, which we talked about, is pretty vague and um, is open to a lot of different interpretations. Um, and that's done as frustrating as that can be sometimes. The beauty in that is there is then the flexibility for counties to, to tailor those programs. So um, that's why it's really important to make sure when you're looking at resources that you're looking within your own county to determine um, what resources are available in your county. I can tell you when a kinship caregiver calls me to start asking about resources, there are two questions that I ask them right up front. And I can guarantee you, I ask every single kinship caregiver this question, these questions. And that is who has custody and what county do you live in? And those are both really, really important questions um, but, you know, for, for resources available. Um, so because of our county administered system, I'm going to talk really um, on, a, on a higher level, more state level, um, because these are programs that will be available across the state. So I think, um, Allison, you mentioned TANF briefly. Um, so TANF right now is about $141 for the first child. It goes up um, based you know, on the number of kids in that home. Child welfare involvement does not impact your ability to receive child-only TANF. However, you cannot receive child-only TANF and foster care reimbursement at the same time. So for those two to four months while you're being certified, you can receive child-only TANF. Once you get certification and you start receiving foster care reimbursement, then that TANF is not going to be available any longer. You'd be getting that 
that reimbursement. Um, now TANF, you can either do a, um, a full family benefit and apply for TANF. And in those situations, when the benefit is for the kin caregiver as well, then time limits and um, work requirements do apply. If it's child only, specifically for the child, um, the work requirements and the time limits do not apply. But as Allison mentioned, there still is kind of that um, income requirement. Um, and she touched on what those are. Medicaid also very, very important um, to apply for that. You can apply for, Medi for TANF, Medicaid, um, WIC, and SNAP, which is the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, formerly known as food stamps. Those can all be applied for on one application through Colorado Peak. Um, that, that's an online application or you can apply within your county department. Um, as that conversation a little bit ago about Medicaid and, and some insurance carriers not allowing families to put children on their insurance, um, I've actually seen that with guardianship as well. Um, the only time I've seen where they actually have to allow it is when there's been an adoption and that child is legally yours. Sometimes they've allowed it with um, allocation of parental responsibilities or guardianship. Sometimes they haven't. But um, if you don't have either of those, you can't just put them on your insurance. A lot of these insurance carriers will not allow it. Um, WIC or Women, Infants, and Children is available for families with children ages five or younger to assist with food and formula. Um, that's really a great benefit for those who have newborns or infants who are on a specialized formula um, that's you know pretty expensive. Doctors can write a prescription for that so that it can be available through WIC. My understanding with WIC is that if the parents were eligible for it, then the kinship caregivers can apply and um, receive those benefits on behalf of the child. Um, so SNAP or the food, um, food benefits, it is based off of caregiver income. Um, we've seen many of our kinship caregivers not be eligible for that, um, or they qualify for very small amounts. I mean, we've heard stories that people are qualifying for two or $3 a month, um, which is, I'm sorry, my personal opinion, that's more of a slap in the face than anything, because it's quite a process to go through for that amount of money. Um, child care, there are a few options available. If you're not involved in a child welfare case, you can apply for CCAP or the Colorado Child Care Assistance Program. Eligibility is based on caregiver income for that program. If you are involved in a child welfare case, you can talk to your kinship worker or the caseworker about um, child welfare child care or protective services child care. Those two are, again, ones that are going to be county specific. They, you know, and so they may not be available within your county, either because they don't use the program, they've already spent all of their funds for the year. I mean, there's a whole host of reasons why that may be, may or may not be available. But definitely talk to your workers about that. Another one that I'm still trying to get additional information on, but um, is I'm hearing really, really good things about is Colorado Food Cluster. And that's actually um, a program, a food program um, where they deliver a box of food to your home. Um, it's seven entrees, seven snacks, um, some fruit, um, but it's delivered right to your door. So you don't even have to go to the school to get it. There's no income requirements. Um, so I would, you know, if that's one thing that you really need some assistance with feeding those kiddos um, when they're not at school, check out Colorado Food Cluster. Jeannie, thank you so much. We recently just found out about that one too. And I do just want to reference really quickly that it only runs through May. 
and then we'll start okay. again at, at next school year. So it does not okay. run during the summer, just a heads up, but it's a fantastic program. We had one question really quick regarding the TANF. If I'm already getting foster, the foster stipend, can I still get TANF? No, if you are receiving you foster anything. care reimbursement, you cannot receive TANF. That's considered double dipping. Um, so if you're receiving both, you, you really need to contact TANF and get that stopped because I guarantee you, they will come back, come back and try to get the money from you. And it always seems to happen at the wrong time, right? It always seems to happen like when you're really short and they want their money right now, even though they were paying you and you told them to, to stop. So if you're getting both, um, I would really highly encourage you to reach out to TANF to get those TANF funds stopped. I'm going to turn it over to Gail for just a second before I move on. Yeah, so I really want you all, when I first um, introduce myself, this is a decision that you have to make, and the financial piece of it is the biggest and the hardest thing to do. If you do not become certified, and if, um, if you do not become certified, it is a financial situation. You need to be aware of what those situations are, how you qualify, because most of those services are income-based. And so if you have a, a decent size of an income, doesn't necessarily mean you're really able to take on a family member, but it may, it may not allow you to have some of those services. So again, be informed from the very beginning. So when I go, um, thanks Gail very much for that. Um, I wanna kind of switch gears and not go more to those really tangible benefits that I think you know we kind of were thinking about, but um, some of those other things that you might need help uh, with, I mean, we, I heard some people talking about, you know, some of that information. I did put the link to our child welfare training system in the chat because those trainings are free for kinship caregivers, even non-certified kinship caregivers. So you can uh, create an account, you can take any of the trainings, which are fabulous. I would highly, highly, highly recommend trust-based relational intervention or TBRI. I will tell you, it has been the best training I have ever taken professionally. Um, and personally, I, I benefited so much as a professional and as a parent, I can tell you that training alone saved my sanity. So if you have never heard of TBRI, I would highly encourage you to look into it and see if it's something that could help you out as well. But, you know, a lot of times kinship caregivers have questions that they're afraid to ask or embarrassed to ask, um, either because it seems like it might be a stupid question, or if I ask that, will that be perceived as I don't know what I'm doing, or I don't have the resources I need, and are they going to take the kid away from me, um, kind of things like that. Um, we have tons of information on the Colorado, Connection, uh, Colorado Kinship Connection website. We also have a Facebook page. Um, but on the Kinship Connection website, there is a toolkit that explains um, who the players are in a child welfare case, um, the different hearings in a dependency and neglect case, um, what the differences are between kinship foster care and non-certified kinship care. There's a whole list of questions of um, what to ask your caseworker, because sometimes it's like, I don't know what I don't know, right? So sometimes you don't know what questions to ask. And so there's a list um, of all kinds of questions and whether that question is most appropriate for your intake worker or your ongoing worker um, or both. But at least it kind of gives you an idea of things that it's okay for you to, to ask those questions and it's okay for you to ask any question. Um, but those are just some things of like, this is information that you're probably gonna wanna know. There's also a resource guide and that is available in both English and Spanish. So um, that goes into developmental milestones. I mean, it goes into all kinds of different programs 
um, education related things, medical things. So um, if you haven't seen that, it's about 37 pages, I believe, um, but it's online. I, I would encourage you to check that out. Uh, really quickly uh, put in here, Jeannie, that if, um, if you're listening to this class, you can access the handout section of this course where we have a lot of handouts, including that document. So, yep, great resources in there. If you're listening, please check out the handout section. We also talked about, um, you know, the kinship caseworkers or the navigators. Your larger counties are going to have um, at least one or two workers, if not entire teams. One of our larger counties actually has four teams of kinship caseworkers. Um, to support their county. So if you do, if you're involved in child welfare and you do not have a kinship caseworker or kinship navigator, please ask if there's one available because they really are there to help support you and support your needs. Whereas the 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 whole premise of the the worker is to work on reunification efforts and work towards, you know, resolving whatever that is with the parent. And sometimes that can feel icky if you're not you know, really on board with reunification or if there's information that you know of, you know, and you've had kind of a long history with the family. Um, so really make sure that if you don't have a kinship worker that you are talking with the caseworker of, about whether one is available. And then, um, you know, there's some things that you might be afraid to bring up because you're, you might be struggling or it's like, hey, I kind of need some food or like these kids came with nothing on their backs and so we really need some clothing. If there is help or support that you need, please, please, please speak up. As Gail mentioned earlier, kids do better with families and counties always, you know, their goal is to keep the kids in the lowest level of care possible. If kids cannot remain with their parents, with their family or people that they know really well is the next level, the next lowest level of care. And that's where we would like to keep them. So it is much cheaper to be able to provide kids, kids with clothes, right? Or be able to provide some gift cards for gas or food than it is to try to put them in a foster care. They're gonna do better with you. Um, so there's some short-term support that's going to keep that placement intact and not um, disrupt. The counties would much rather do that. It's, it's better for everybody involved. So if you, um, if you need help, if you need some support, please, please, please speak up. Um, there's also, so your kinship worker, also community agencies such as Foster Source. Um, I don't know that we've talked about Catholic charities yet. Um, there's um, others that, that work in specific counties such as Families First, I'm, I'm sorry, um, Family Tree and Maple Star. So those are some things that are available also in the community, but Foster Source is great. Catholic Charities is great. Some of those other community agencies that specifically serve kin, please reach out if you're having problems and you don't want to go um, to the county. Um, in saying that, I also wanna make be very, very clear to under, to, that it's important to understand that every situation is gonna be different. So it's one thing for a family to need, you know, rental assistance or mortgage assistance for a month or to, um, get you know close for the kids they're happy to do that but it's very different than not being able to provide for ongoing need like the basic ongoing needs so like if you cannot meet your mortgage every month or utilities are so high that they're getting shut off there's no way to pay them um you know that and utilities are off for a specifically long period of time that you know i mean those are a little more severe right so um I just want to make sure that, you know, because they said, oh, well, Jeannie said, you know, you need help. Come talk to us. We'll help you out. We don't want to move the kid. 
I just want to be very clear that in severe situations where a family cannot support basic needs on a on an ongoing basis, that that could look a little different, and they might need to find another family member who can meet those. Does not mean that you could not be a support and help out, but um, you would need to at least be able to meet those basic needs on an ongoing basis. So I, I just wanted to make that distinction. Um, but then also family members not chosen for placement can be a resource of support for the family member who is. So emotional support, respite care, providing transportation, maybe you can provide a little bit, of, maybe you can provide the $5 for the field trip, right? I mean, that's certainly supporting the kinship caregiver. Um, and maybe it's not that you can't provide support for the kin and for the kinship caregiver, but maybe you can provide transportation for the parent. Maybe you can take them to their UA or take them to their parenting class or to, you know, drive them to their visit. So even if there's multiple people who want to be the kinship caregiver, um, you know, really speaking with all of the, the family supports about those who were not chosen as the, the, the caregiver, what else can you do to support that child, that kinship caregiver, that parent, so that when this is all over, right, that the kid stays within the family. The kid either goes back home to the parents or they stay with the kinship caregiver they're placed with and that there's a plan in place that if something in the happen happens in the future again that there's already a plan in place that everybody in the family knows what to knows what to do and child welfare is not getting involved a second time or a third or fourth time that the, the family kind of is able to step in and, and know what that plan already is perfect that was, yeah, you covered a lot of ground on resources. Again, we have some handouts on that. Gail has put together some handouts on that as grandfamilies. Obviously she is a huge resource um, for grandparents and other kin. Foster Source is a huge resource, um, Catholic Charities. I know that there's, um, there's actually a question in our chat that says, how does a person become a kinship worker? And I, I'm not entirely sure if I'm understanding that right, the question itself, right? But the the kinship worker, Jeannie, that, that has been referenced throughout this call is a case, essentially a caseworker through the county or in some counties, they actually outsource that to like Catholic charities. If, um, for some of the, yeah, some other counties do that, but correct. Correct? yeah, you are correct. And it's going to depend based on county and what services the kinship workers provide, what their, um, level of education is. So there are counties that do require at least a bachelor's degree. Um, to be a kinship caseworker because they are certified as a caseworker. We have other um, counties where they um, have case aides who serve as their kinship um, workers um, where a bachelor's degree is not required. And then those requirements may look different as well in some of our community agencies. So you would, I mean, it would be a matter of contacting the agencies that you would want to work with as a kinship caregiver. Um, certainly if you wanna reach out to me and we can talk offline, um, I'm, I'm certainly happy to kind of talk with you and point you in the right direction of, of how to get started in that process. Perfect. Okay, we have one last question and I feel like this is the best way to end today's class. Everybody wants to know how long the case is gonna take and I'm gonna just right now say nobody ever knows. <laughs> There's no way to know the answer to that question. So the actual question here, what are the potential outcomes of a case? So there's, Various outcomes, right? The, the first and foremost, the one that everybody is working on is reunification, right? We always want those kids to go home with their parents if it is safe and possible to do so. Um, if that cannot happen, then we're looking at 
adoption, allocation of parental responsibilities, um, uh, you know, or guardianship. Um, we always too are looking at the, the highest level of permanency and also what meets the needs of the family. So if reunification does not happen, the, neck, the highest level of permanency would be adoption because then that child becomes legally your child. I mean, there's, they changed the birth certificate. I mean, that, that it is a legal thing. This is now your child. You actually cannot get child only TANF anymore um, because it is your child. Um, and then there is guardianship and allocation of parental responsibilities. So that's that APR that we've been talking about kind of throughout the day. Um, and those are very, very similar, um, but there are some differences and nuances, kind of um, some of the, the bigger nuances is consent to military and consent to marriage. Um, you know, allocation of parental responsibilities, you can go back to court every two years, or the parents can go back to court every two years to try to get custody, um, but there, there's just some nuances between those two that they're, they are just a little bit different. Um, now you also could do power of attorney. Um, power of attorney, I think is more of a short-term option um, because of the fact that they are revocable, um, which is good if, you know, for a short-term thing and if parents are on the right track and they're doing what they need to do, great. Um, but reunification, adoption, um, guardianship or allocation of parental responsibilities really are, um, kind of those final outcomes. And I really like what Gail said in the chat of, um, you know, which ways are gonna go or which one's best. It really does depend. It really depends on the situ on each person's situation because there are pros and cons for each option. So I would really, really, really encourage you if you're involved in a case or if you're involved um, with a, caring for a child to really research the options and become familiar with them and select the option that best fits the needs of your family. Great. Uh, one little phrase that is often thrown around in, in kinship care, well, foster care in general, concurrent planning. Can you tell us really quick what concurrent planning means? Sure. Concurrent planning means that you're working towards one goal, but you've got kind of this backup goal just in case. So usually what you see with concurrent planning in child welfare cases is um, the primary goal being return home. And then the concurrent plan might be, um, you know, long-term arrangement with a family member, usually through adoption. So you're working on this, but you've got this kind of along if, if this isn't working out and you need to go to plan B. It's almost like having a plan B, right? Um, it's a good way to say it. So you're working on this, but you got this just in case that, that this one doesn't work out. Perfect. Okay. Oh my goodness. Well, everybody can breathe now. <laughs> that was there's so much information to be offered regarding kinship care. And that was a fantastic intro. Um, someone in the chat said amazing conference. So thank you to all the panelists for providing this valuable, valuable information. We are excited to share it. Um, we're going to have this on this on our website so that future brand new kinship caregivers can access this right out of the gate. Um, hoping that it will empower the kinship caregiver to do the best they can for the kiddo in their care. So um, on that note, I don't see anything else in the chat. Enjoy your Saturday. <laughs>